Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royful Brown, who is back home in uh, the mother country. I'm back home in England for the first time in a whole year. I'm in my hometown of Birmingham and joined with us today, we have on stage, because we do record these on Clubhouse, Laura Babcock, political pundit extraordinaire from Hamilton in southern Ontario. We're joined by our good friend John Goodison, who's a good friend of the podcast, and by another good friend of the podcast, Justin Higgins. But in a week which has seen Canada have its second uh, election, we're going to ask just what has been achieved by spending $600 million on another Canadian election. Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party will form the next government in Canada after the country's second general election in two years. Conservative opposition leader Erin O'Toole has already conceded defeat, but in a blow to Prime Minister Trudeau, it's expected to be a minority administration. The poll was called in the hope that Trudeau's Liberal Party could win enough seats to govern alone, unshackled by the constraints of coalition government. In his third consecutive election win, Justin Trudeau greets his supporters as the Prime Minister of Canada. But this win was far from guaranteed, and at times, his future as leader looked uncertain. I hear you when you say that you just want to get back to the things you love, not worry about this pandemic or about an election. That you just want to know that your members of Parliament of all stripes will have your back through this crisis and beyond. Laura, thank you for joining us. Justin Trudeau has won a third term in power. Uh, but has he lost some of his luster with the fact that he didn't exactly achieve his objectives, did he? He wanted to get out of being a minority government, but that is not what he's achieved. He did damage his brand because unless you're a diehard partisan liberal, you saw this election for what it was, a power grab to try to get out of the morass of being a minority leader and having to make deals with the NDP all the time to being a majority leader, which is what he wanted to get back to. And so people saw it as a power grab. They knew once there'd be a certain level of vaccination achieved in the country and Canada did do well in terms of its vaccination rates, that Trudeau would see it as a sign that he could go for that majority. And so not only did he not get the majority, but there was a $600 million cost that a lot of people wish had been spent towards other things. And, you know, they didn't come out with any more power. And he's overstating the faith that Canadians have placed in him. Canadians were annoyed, a lot very angry with the prime minister for various reasons. And I don't think that Canadians have given him a big mandate. I think what Canadians have said is you did a pretty good job with vaccination. That's the priority is getting us out of this pandemic. So we just are going to stay with the horse that we know at this moment. But don't uh, don't let it get to your head, Trudeau. 
Right. Let's go through all the uh, political leaders and, and the major parties in Canada. And I want you to give us a snapshot of how you think they've done and what the immediate future is going to hold. Erin O'Toole, uh, the relatively new leader of the Conservatives, has only been there for just about a year. Um, at some at one point, it looked like the polls were, were tightening and that basically uh, the, the Conservatives might even replace the Liberals as being the largest party. What happened? O'Toole was pretty new to Canadian politics, and at least at the national level in terms of visibility. So there was a honeymoon phase where Canadians were getting to know him. There's a lot of things to like about O'Toole, his military service, he's quite charismatic, he seemed quite reasonable. And so I think that there was a little bit of a honeymoon where Canadians were like, huh, I am a little tired of Trudeau, and I don't like having to have this election right now. Maybe O'Toole is a reasonable alternative. And so you started to see the polls really tightening up. You started to see talk of potentially the Conservatives forming a government. Uh, but then it started to unravel. Once O'Toole was on the wrong side of the assault rifle ban during one of the televised, two televised debates, when that really came out, people started to say, wait, wait, wait a second. What is his real agenda? What does he really want to do? And then he tried to pivot to the middle, which upset his base. And then I think what really undermined O'Toole's campaign was in that all-important 72 hours before the election, when it just became clear that he was not going to ask his MPs or his candidates who were going door to door in a fourth wave of the pandemic. He was not going to ask them to reveal their vaccination status. And that was something that I think a lot of Canadians thought, if you can't even have your own people be fully vaccinated, how are you going to get Canada to your target of 90%? And then he stopped taking questions in the last 24 hours, kind of hid. And that's when we knew there was problems. And I think something that really hurt his future as leader was when he sent out an, um, sort of a missive to the media or a signal saying, you know what, if we hold Trudeau to a minority, that's a win. You know, that kind of weakness from a conservative leader is not taken very well. So he is very damaged coming out of this campaign. Let's just stand the Conservatives just for, for a little while, because I really want to understand what they're going to do next. Uh, from an American perspective, Canadian politics is pivoted slightly to, to the left. We have the Liberals, who, from an American lens, are, are Democrats. We have the NDP, who um, fundamentally are AOC, kind of like Bernieites. We have uh, the Green Party, which depending on what mood you're in, skews left as well. So uh, over half of the main political parties in Canada skew left to centre, viewed from, let's say, an American perspective. You said Erin O'Toole did try and kind of like pivot somewhat leftwards to the centre, you know, to the, you know, where the centre, where the gravity of Canadian politics is. Was that the wrong move, considering that he had to somewhat pander to, to the prairie states as well, or much more? questioning about uh, central government, the federal government and, and the role of it. So was his pivot completely and utterly wrong? And will we potentially see um, the Conservative Party going forward from this election plot a path rightwards? Well, the Conservative Party has had an identity crisis in this country going way back to Preston Manning and they split off with the Reform Party. Then you had Harper magically almost keep the different uh, extremes of the party together under one tent successfully uh, and ran the country. But that took a tremendous amount of skill because to your point, Canada is a very broad country geographically. There's a very different feel. I just came back from a, a trip out to across five of the Western provinces in August and the conversations I had in Saskatchewan, Alberta and British Columbia, very different. And in Manitoba, very different from here in Ontario in the GTA in the in the you know, kind of vote rich area where I live. So it's a very different country. And, and the Conservative Party has a strong base out West, and they feel very differently about what's going on in Quebec and in Ontario. And so any leader of the Conservatives is going to have that tension that they have to navigate. The problem with O'Toole going back and forth during the campaign is that it was hard for conservatives to identify where he really stood. And was he pandering for the votes, but didn't really care about their agenda? Did he care about the West as much as they thought that he had? So then we saw his vote actually get eroded somewhat 
by the new party on the scene, the Canadian, the People's Party, which I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, and they got a lot of votes. And were those votes going to be conservative? Most likely. It's hard to imagine anyone who voted for Maxine Bernier's People's Party would have ever voted for any of these more progressive parties that you mentioned. So O'Toole pivoting to the middle cost him votes on the hard right. And I think for a lot of they thought, you know what, this guy hasn't found his footing yet. I'm not sure what the Canadian conservative brand even means at this point. Opposition leader Aaron O'Toole, he ran a centrist campaign, hoping to turn disaffected liberal voters into conservative ones. Five weeks ago, Mr. Trudeau asked for a majority. He said the minority parliament was, quote, unworkable. But tonight, Canadians did not give Mr. Trudeau the majority mandate he wanted. In fact, Canadians sent him back with another minority at the cost of $600 million and deeper divisions in our great country. Let's move on to the Bloc Quebecois. Um, They uh, gained a couple of seats, though, uh, according to Elections Canada, the Liberals did pick up um, another seat actually in Quebec um, on mail-in ballots. So um, what position will they hold in Parliament if it's any different from the last? Nothing, nothing really different. They're going to uh, they're going to do what they always do, which is to try to protect Quebec's interest to speak up for Quebec, to fight for transfer payments to Quebec in healthcare, to uh, consistently put it forward that the way that the federal government is set up, uh, to use Blanchette's words, is a hostage situation. Uh, that's how he describes it. So they, they've always had that kind of rhetoric. I, as you know, I grew up in Quebec during uh, the initial referendum on separation. And so the Bloc Québécois always positions itself as the great defender of the Quebecois interest. That's why they hold on to the seats that they have. But you don't imagine they're ever going to really form any kind of coalition, even on a vote basis with Trudeau. So it really is the NDP with Jamit Singh and Trudeau forming an unofficial, if you will, coalition. But the the NDP seem to always go along with whatever Trudeau wants to do. So I don't see the bloc as being much of a spoiler to that. Just tell us a little bit about the political positioning um, of of the bloc. Um, generally, in European politics, if someone is a nationalist, they skew right of centre. Uh, but in the UK, we have the Scottish nationalists who are very much are a left of centre party. So it, describe the political platform of the bloc, apart from separation, more money for Quebec. Uh, you know, the, the it's always interesting for people who are watching the the French debate, the Canadian debate, that you have someone on the dais with these other national leaders who is not actually a nationalist, right? So the bloc is always um, a curious thing in the when it comes to national election time, and they have there has been a lot in Quebec over the last couple of years around immigration and around religious symbols, and um, you know, so. I don't want to characterize the bloc a particular way other than to say that it really is about protecting the Quebecois, you know, uh, to bring up words going back to Meech Lake, the kind of distinct society that Quebec is uh, against the values of the rest of Canada or of changing it. So it really is about identity politics with the Bloc Quebecois, not to the extreme that we might have seen in the past where they're calling for a vote to leave Canada. We haven't seen that escalation of the rhetoric, but there's that's always what really um, is the raison d'être, if you will, for the Bloc Quebec. Just on on that note of um, wanting, you know, calling for a referendum to leave Canada, is that actually a vote loser for the bloc? Do they want, in effect, does the leader of the bloc have to go all the way up to actually saying let's have another referendum, and then w- when that is called, actually they don't, uh, you know, get uh, a majority of votes in Quebec. Well, I think that there has to be the specter of the possibility, right? There has to be a strong sense of, of you know, really tough rhetoric. And we saw that in the English debate when uh, the bloc leader took a question and kind of pivoted over to the way that Quebecois have been treated and the power differential and the imbalance. Uh, you know, so they always push the envelope in terms of what they're willing to do for for the almost the sovereignty of the Quebec people, but the Quebecois. But I don't think that 
it's wise strategically to get to the referendum vote. I mean, for many of us, uh, we've lived through two of them where the country was on the precipice. And I don't think there's an appetite for it, particularly in a pandemic. But if you're going to be running a party, a provincial essential party on the national stage, and your whole raison d'être is to protect the values and the unique identity and culture of your province, you always, I think, have to have it in the background that you'd be willing to take that ultimate step or people won't think that you are really passionately defending their interests. Right. Let's move on to the fourth uh, biggest party, uh, not in terms of votes, but definitely in terms of seats, which is the NDP. Jagmeet Singh has been uh, the leader of, of this uh, party now for this is his third election cycle. And his first, he lost a lot of seats. He's only gained one in this election. Surely this is a bloody nose for the NDP. It is a bloody nose for the NDP. However, uh, Canadians are somewhat enamored with Jagmeet Singh, and he was the most likable of the leaders throughout the campaign. He always scores very high in terms of likability, and even within his own party, you don't see the kind of internecine warfare that took out the Green Party in this cycle. Uh, you see them very much supportive of Singh. And so the question for the NDP becomes, well, you know, if we took a battering last time and really lost a lot of our seats and we made tiny gains this time, is Jagmeet still the person to lead us? And and I think looking at the way the NDP tends to deal with leaders, I mean, it did jettison Mulcair before, but there seems to be more of a, a love affair with Jagmeet, if you will. I think he's got another go in him. He'll have another round as long as he stays as that powerful voice, constantly kingmaking with Trudeau and making those critical deals for Trudeau to be able to get anything done during this minority government. So Jagmeet has a powerful role. He tends to use social media in a very uh, clever way, although a story just came out today, fascinatingly, that younger voters weren't that much drawn to Jagmeet and all of his social media and his TikToks and all the rest of it. So that might have been an overcalculation that they made in trying to appeal to the youth vote. And I'm sure the party has to do some soul searching about just how they ran their campaign and how they spent so much more money this time and didn't do very much. So in terms of being able to lead the party's fortunes and a campaign, he hasn't done well in terms of people feeling as though he's a good face and voice for the party's values. I think he still has a very strong brand within the NDP federally. Jagmeet Singh, how well does he play actually in Quebec? There is a new law in, in Quebec, which basically is aligned to, to the French, which is kind of banning overt religious symbols. Here is a man um, wearing his turban with, with a very full beard. He is a religiously observant Sikh. How does that play out when he's campaigning in Quebec? You know, that's a very good question. Jagmeet Singh has been subjected to uh, to racism throughout his time as the national leader. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, I don't want to say particularly that Quebec sees him differently, even though we know, as you mentioned, that Quebec has some very controversial laws. Um, I think that the NDP didn't do terribly well in Quebec. They didn't really present a value proposition for Quebec. Uh, I don't know that Jagmeet's, I mean, he's from Vancouver. He's from the far West Coast, works in Toronto. So I'm not quite sure that there's really that connection that can matter so much uh, when you're trying to run and get some seats in Quebec and also wrest those seats away from Justin Trudeau, who is a Quebecer uh, and who did do a really good job during the pandemic. And in some instances, Quebec was leading. Ontario and other places in terms of its pandemic response. So um, uh, there are a lot of reasons why I don't think Jagmeet Singh did better in Quebec than Thomas Mulcair did, or why he didn't do any better. Right. Let's go on to Anna May Paul. Uh, the Green Party are in some level of, of turmoil. Uh, but before we talk about their actual performance in this election, why don't you tell us about her her time actually as being leader of the Green Party, because that's been quite tumultuous. Um, tell us how uh, the Green Party have seen her leadership and how Canada actually sees the Greens. It's been an absolute disaster. I mean, her leadership has been an unmitigated disaster. I cannot remember the last time that a political leader has done so much brand damage with the warring within their own caucus, within their own party. It, it brought it to the point where the Greens took losses. I think they had their worst performance in 20 years. Uh, and it's not because she's not an intelligent, articulate, charismatic 
person. In fact, she did a tremendously good job in the all-important Canadian English debate. We only have two TV debates here, if you can imagine it. <laughs> and uh, she did a tremendous job on that one night of that opportunity. And I think it left a lot of people thinking, wow, with climate change being the existential crisis of our lifetime and the Green Party leader being so articulate and, and thoughtful, isn't it a shame that she doesn't seem to be able to lead? And there was a moment where she was criticizing Trudeau and he turned to her rather snidely and said, I'm not going to take lessons from you on how to run my caucus. Uh, it was it was quite a snotty reply, but it had weight to it, which is that Canadians who might have wanted to vote green thought, well, how can we? The party is at war with itself. So, you know, Elizabeth May, who brought the party to real prominence, has spoken with Paul since the election. And uh, they're going to be doing some soul searching. And Paul is said to be very disappointed. Uh, as she should be. Uh, I don't think that she is uh, doesn't have seem to have the leadership skills for what national party leadership requires, in spite of all of her other attributes. And she even came forth in her own election, in her own riding, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, because why would you elect somebody who is in a public? war. (laughs) It's not as though, I'm not Pollyannic, it's not as though the Conservatives don't have private wars behind the scenes or the Liberals don't have dissension in the ranks. I mean, and we saw that, of course, with the whole blow up with uh, the SNC-Lavalin affair and Jody Wilson-Raybould and all of that scandal that hit Trudeau a while back because of how he was handling his cabinet and and the wars that were going on. I mean, but that was an unusual leak from the Liberal Party. Usually the Liberals and the Conservatives are pretty good at keeping that stuff buttoned up. Even the NDP, I would argue, are pretty good at keeping it where it needs to be in their boardrooms and not on display. The Green Party made it public, including Paul's, and I don't think that people want to reward that with leadership. Isn't one of the problems with the Greens that uh, the NDP have quite decent Green credentials? So do the Liberals and even the Conservatives, depending on what mood Erin O'Toole was in was talking about green issues that fundamentally if you're concerned about the future of the planet you could easily just vote ndp liberal or even conservative well on the conservative one i mean you make the good point right the fact that it depends where he stands he said that it wasn't going to be an immediate priority to reverse the carbon taxes so what does that mean the next day you know so i think that that didn't make a lot of people feel warm and fuzzy about the conservatives environmental policies or plans and you had the conservative provincial leaders Ken and Ford and others unsuccessfully tried to challenge Trudeau's carbon tax in court. You know, it was a big embarrassment for all of them. So, I mean, if they're trying to challenge it uh, at the great expense of their own constituents provincially, how can you really believe that the federal party is going to be all in on ambitious climate targets? Now, you can make the argument that Trudeau talks a good game, but hasn't done enough, hasn't met his targets. Uh, And Jagmeet Singh, I think, was effective in pointing that out throughout the campaign that Trudeau doesn't can't be trusted on his promises. He just doesn't seem to deliver. Now, that's always easier to say in opposition when you're not held accountable for policymaking. Uh, but the fact is that, if to your point, when Canadians are looking at what's happening with climate, as I mentioned, we drove across the country. There was the uh, historic drought across the prairies. There hadn't been rain in months as we went through. Uh, and people had never seen anything like it. And then you hit BC, the West Coast, and the forest fires were so terrible. I mean, just for us, we had to keep changing our routes. Highways were closing. We could see the fires burning. The, the skies were yellow. Some cities were apocalyptic with red sky. I mean, you know climate emergency is happening. You can see it and smell it in Canada. And so it is an absolute priority for many Canadians to do something more effectively than we have before. Uh, So I think that the votes really were either going to go to the Liberals or the NDP on this. And the problem that the NDP always face is that when people get into that voting booth and they think, Mm, do I want to do I want to trust that that Jagmeet can pull out enough votes to take on the conservatives or are we going to end up with a conservative government? I think I'll just strategically vote for Trudeau. I mean, I think they always fall down to that calculus that Canadians make in order to stop a conservative agenda, especially on something like climate change. Let's go on to the sixth party uh, who garnered no votes at all, no seats, sorry, at all, but actually garnered just under a million votes at the People's Party of Canada, led by Maxime Bernier. What does he do now? 
with um, yet another uh, wipeout in terms of not having any MPs. And yet again, he lost his own seat. He continues to build this rather alarming grassroots movement based on some of the very narratives that we've seen Trump do when he took over the Republican Party in the States. It's a lot of the same rhetoric. It feels the same way. You even see people with Make America Great hats at his rallies. Um, the They were the ones throwing the rocks at the prime minister. I mean, this is an extreme party. And their platforms are about raising fear around immigration and that whole sense of, you know, what's being taken away from us, you know, that that when you know, when you see that narrative of grievance, it's very powerful. I, I was uh, I had the privilege of of moderating an anti-hate summit recently. And one of the experts from the U.S., I think it was the Southern Poverty Law Center, said where there is hate, or rather where there is fear, hate organizes. And there's been so much fear during the pandemic in Canada and around the world that hate is really organizing. And so Bernier's party picked up on those narratives, exploited that uh, between the anti-vax nonsense that they were, they were catering to and the anti-immigration they gave angry Canadians a place to go. And as O'Toole started to pivot towards centre to try to have any chance at getting a, a majority or even a minority government, a lot of people said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to Bernier because Bernier tried to lead the Conservative Party federally. He almost got there, didn't quite, started his own grassroots party. And that grassroots party is picking up on the extreme and on the rage and probably pulling votes away from the Conservative Party federally. So it's very alarming. And I think what Bernier does is keep on trucking the way that he has been. Uh, and I, I don't think he or the party is going anywhere, unfortunately. If they're not going anywhere and they, they got 5% of the vote, which is a 3.4% swing, and they did get 800,000 uh, votes, that is the difference between the Conservatives actually winning a, a majority, isn't it? If all of those People's Party of Canada voters voted Conservative, Erin O'Toole would now be the Prime Minister. So surely what the Conservatives have to do to counter this party, this 5% of Canadians, is to track rightwards. Well, that is one way of looking at it. And certainly there have been some Conservatives who have been posting, you know, let's, you know, kind of screw it, let's go all in. <laughs> you know, uh, But you're not going to get a majority like that, at least not easily, because that will not appeal to the seat dense uh, places in Canada like Toronto. And if you're not appealing to Toronto and the whole GTA, you're very unlikely to ever lead the country. There has to be a broader appeal than what the People's Party and the hard right represents. Now, having said that, we saw in the U.S. pundits say, oh, there's no way that the extreme could ever, you know, become super popular. And we saw the amount of votes that Trump got. So there's a possibility that the conservatives are making this very calculus uh, and they may decide it's worth the risk to go for it and that there might be enough anger and enough uh, that they can kind of pull the party together to make that happen. But one of the things they did strategically wrong at the very end of the campaign was they had a former prime minister, Brian Mulroney, who uh, spoke in favor of O'Toole. And so it left people wondering, well, wait a sec, is this the Harper party? Is this a far right party? Is this a far left progressive conservative party? Where are they? So they, they really have an identity crisis and they're going to have to figure out what their true values are as conservatives. And they've only probably got a couple of years to do it. If they come out of the gate next time as confused as this time, then who knows? Maybe Trudeau will get that majority he craves so much. Looking at the spread of seats won by the by the political parties, it's actually quite stark that the Liberals, who are going to have, who are going to be the largest party, going to have the minority government, actually do really badly in the Prairie states. None in Saskatchewan, only a few seats, and in Alberta, a few in Manitoba, um, and, and actually the Conservative Party are the only true national party of Canada. And they got more votes than the Liberals. But because of first past the post, um, they do disproportionately worse. Isn't there an argument um, on the right of Canadian politics about, about election reform, S some level of reform, which actually gives the Conservative Party its due weight in Parliament? 
Sure. <laughs> and that's why we saw a lot of conservative columnists, uh, you know, frustrated when Trudeau said that, you know, uh, electoral reform is still something he'll think about. I mean, you know, why, why are you going to give up advantage in a game where it's where you've got the advantage? It's and I, I'm not comparing it exactly to gerrymandering that we see in the U.S., but if you know how to get the map to work for you under a certain system, then why would you possibly give up that advantage? The conservatives got more of the popular vote last time than the liberals did, right? Uh, the argument can be made that a lot of Canadians are interested in something other than Justin Trudeau's liberals. The question becomes, how do you make that happen with the structure the way that it is? I mean, there's been a longstanding kind of joke, although it's quite sad, that on election night, people out in BC find out who they voted for before they even can close their polls, right? If you get if you get a, a wave coming through Quebec uh, and Ontario, then the rest of it is kind of like, well, how do we matter? And that further divides the country east-west. And that's a theme that certainly gets picked up on. And I'll just give you one little, uh, you know, analogy. When I was in Saskatchewan and I was speaking to someone and they said, uh, this is the worst drought we've ever had. It's a terrible situation we're going through. But damn that Trudeau and his and his tax on uh, on emissions, right? Um, that idea it, it seemed like cognitive dissonance. They're going through these climate crises, but they don't they they really don't like Trudeau out west. Uh, and so even if it doesn't seem to make sense on a policy front. Because of the history of his father and everything to do with the oil sands and everything else that's going on, they, uh, there is a real opportunity for the Conservatives federally if they can figure out how to represent those voices out West and still appeal to those power centres that the Liberal Party has in the in centre of Canada or centre East. Just on that, give me the modal profile of a Conservative voter in Quebec. That's a terrific question. I think that Quebecers, like anyone else in Canada, looks at a couple of factors when they're choosing a leader. This is a country that has always been considered, uh, people are fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. In other words, they don't want, famously, the, Trudeau's father said, that, you know, the, the government in the bedroom, they don't want it to be that level of control. Uh, but they also want to take care of their fellow Canadians, and they don't want it to be sort of a full-on capitalist model like we see in the U.S., where it feels as though income just keeps growing and growing. I mean, it's growing in Canada, there's no doubt about it. But there's a sense that it isn't completely running amok, that there are parties like the NDP and the, the Liberals that recognize the issue and don't want it to get that way. We want to keep our social safety net. We want to hold on to our universal health care, as flawed as it is. We don't want to uh, lose that. So the Conservative voter is somebody, I think, who says, how am I going to both conserve whatever I have of my family and the values that I see as part of my culture and my society. I don't want to see too much radical change and, and a tilt so far to the left that, you know, we start to lose our our value and our currency and we start to lose our business competitiveness. Um, but at the same time, I I want to make sure that we continue to have that fabric of that social safety net in place. So it really, to me, a conservative voter is someone who is trying to look at it pragmatically which I think a lot of liberal voters are as well. The NDP might be more focused on social justice and on really improving that social safety net with universal pharmacare and everything. But I think there's a lot of Canadians that would vote liberal in one election and conservative in another. It depends on the leader at the time. It depends on their appeal. Uh, and it depends on the policy issues that are on the table. So at any point, I think the conservative voter in Quebec or anywhere else is ready to go there. They might be a liberal voter. They might flip. It really comes down to the value proposition. And that's why the conservatives are fighting so hard to get the right leader in place to make that argument. Because I'm just kind of fascinated by trying to understand the kind of like the 4D chess aspect of Canadian politics. So would a, the typical conservative voter in Quebec, would they be English speaking? Would that be a fair assumption to make that they want to preserve the confederation, the like, you know, they want Canada to be a unified country and they're more likely to be English speaking and maybe an NDP um, uh, voter in, in Quebec is more likely to be, I don't know, somebody who believes in Canada, but is left of centre. I, I, I don't know. But, but please kind of paint that kind of picture for us. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know the demographic psychographic uh, breakdown on that particular question, whether or not they're more likely to be an English speaker. Um, you know, you could say that that makes sense if you track the election results and, you know, the, the popularity in English speaking Canada of the Conservative Party. Uh, but I, I don't want to make that declaration here, Royfield. I just don't know the answer to it. What I can tell you is that a lot of the Conservatives that I know that I'm friends with they tend to be people, small business owners. They tend to be people who are constantly looking at their own bottom line and looking at the management of the country's bottom line. And there was a comment that Trudeau made during the election that might have lost people who are on that, you know, that kind of purple line, not red, not blue in Canada, just that, that typical Canadian voter that wants to be fiscally conservative and socially liberal. When Trudeau said that in response to um, the evacuation, uh, of refugees made a comment from during what was happening in um, Afghanistan. Trudeau said, you know, effectively, I don't look at economic policy. He was speaking in the context of when it comes to humanitarian crisis. But that line was probably enough for a number of people who might have given him another vote because of his pandemic handling to say, what? What are you talking about? So now I got to go conservative because you're saying you don't even look at economic policy. So, I mean, I think a lot of Canadians are vote both ways. It's not like we would see maybe in the US where it's, you know, kind of God party or God country party. In Canada, we're not quite that loyal. It's like, well, you know, if it's a good leader and they seem reasonable and they've got the best platform and they're running some good candidates locally, maybe they get my vote this time around. Well, Justin Trudeau is going to be uh, the Prime Minister this time around, but surely uh, this is his last election as leader of the Liberal Party. I don't think that's a sure thing at all. Uh, Trudeau is still quite young. There is still quite a devotion to Trudeau. I mean, we've seen some cracks and we've certainly seen the vitriol uh, for people, especially from the PPC party against Trudeau, but that also builds loyalty. I don't think that the that the base was particularly enamored with this election timing. They weren't really all fired up like we've seen in previous elections. There wasn't some new sunny ways vibe, you know, coming across the country like we saw when he got the majority a few elections back. People were like, all right, fine, whatever. But then when he started to get rocks thrown at him, people are like, what? You're throwing rocks at Justin Trudeau? You know, the, the person we've known since he was a child, the one who spoke at his father's funeral, who is so still beloved in this country. Um, so I, I don't think that you can count out the Trudeau brand, no matter how his election results are. I mean, if it had been an absolute failure and he'd made tremendous strategic errors in the campaign, maybe, but he didn't. He ran a, a reasonable campaign and he leveraged the sympathy vote at the very end of it uh, and the opportunity around the pandemic and his record on vaccination. So I would not say that's a sure thing at all, Royfield, that he is not going to front the party in the next go around. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. 
Last question from me. Uh, Trudeau and the Liberals have pledged to deepen economic and diplomatic uh, defence partnerships with the Asia-Pacific region. And there's been a geopolitical bomb uh, dropped uh, just last week with uh, the US, the UK and Australia announcing a new security pact. Erin O'Toole is a big fan of Kanzuk, the proposed trade deal between Canada, uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and the UK. You know, it's kind of a poor man's British empire, basically. Um, do you think, uh, do you think <laughs> Trudeau is going to be enamoured uh, by this, considering that he, he want, that he says he wants to uh, strengthen uh, Canada's uh, defence links to uh, the Asian Pacific region? I'm not sure his position on that specific trade deal, but I, I can tell you that uh, I like your analogy, actually. <laughs> Would you call it a poor man's... Uh, British empire. <laughs> British empire, yeah. Um, uh, you know, Trudeau is quite close to Biden, both philosophically. I, I would argue that Trudeau is further to the left than Biden, perhaps. But I would find it hard to imagine that Canada doesn't align with the U.S., that doesn't try to follow um, where Biden is heading. And Trudeau was very, very close with Obama. And, you know, they might have some differences in terms of pipelines and whatnot. But when it comes to that geopolitical, that sort of macro view, I think it's fairly safe to say, generally speaking, that Trudeau is going to align with where the opportunities are with the U.S. Now, on the particular trade deal, I, I don't have a definitive answer for you, Royfield, but if I were watching it from space, I would assume that you could see Canada tracking closely to where the U.S. is in terms of how it's engaging with the rest of the world, and particularly with China. You know, Trudeau had to go to Biden to personally appeal for him to help release the two Michaels that have been um, captive, captive in China for the last several years. Uh, so he needs Biden to help him with his relations in the area and specifically with that really critical issue. So I don't see, we'll, I don't think we'll see Canada too far out of step with the U.S. when it comes to Asia-Pacific interests. Right. That is a perfect time for me to say, if you're in the audience, now's the time for put up your hand, raise your hand if you'd like to jump up on stage and ask Laura a, a question. I think you can clearly see by the way she was so comprehensively has answered my question. She knows her stuff when it comes to Canadian politics. If you're listening to this podcast and there's 5,000 of you that do, every time I put one of, the, one of these out, 5,000 of you download this. This is a call out to you. If you'd like to uh, be here for a live recording of the show, quite simply, all you need to do is uh, download the Clubhouse app. It's on iTunes. It's also available for Android. Uh, we Generally, we do these on a Thursday. We had a little bit of a Horlix, as we say in England yesterday, uh, uh, a, a bit of a technical disaster. We didn't record this uh, yesterday. Um so recording this on a Friday, but we record these generally every other Thursday. You can be in the audience. You can be listening to the podcast, which you've been consuming for seven years, and you can put your hand up and ask a question. So um, with that in mind, welcome, Dan Silver, to the stage. But John Goodison, um, my, my good friend, sir, do you have a question to Laura about the Canadian election? Uh, thanks, Royfield. And thanks, Laura, for a great synopsis, a great summary uh, the landscape in Canadian politics. I think that a lot of the topics I was curious about, first past the post, the future of the Conservative Party, have already been addressed uh, by in very comprehensive questions from Royfield. But maybe um, if I could ask a little bit more about a couple of the things that Royfield did get into and that Laura did answer. Uh, I think maybe on some of the last couple of topics that were talked about in the questions, um, Royfield was asking about uh, Canadian foreign policy and how it might have been affected by the election. And I'm kind of curious about the distinction maybe between Canadian political parties on some of these big topics, whether there is a distinction maybe or not. Uh, for example, this era of great power competition with China um, has become the big topic in global affairs. And the odd thing is that in the United States and also in Australia, two countries that have very fierce, acrimonious political competition between their major parties. Oddly, there is a consensus on the issue of China. Uh, the Republicans and Democrats in the US and then in Australia, the Liberal and Labour parties, even though they disagree about almost everything else, they don't disagree very much about China. And uh, from the US, we've noticed how in Trudeau's uh, prime ministership, the relationship with China does seem to have gotten much more confrontational for a lot of the reasons that you've discuss, Laura. 
And I'm curious if, uh, with that in mind, the conservatives or any other parties were really able to draw a distinction with Trudeau during the election. And if the China issue was part of the dialogue during the election. I mean, we've seen in Germany how foreign affairs has played almost no role in the election dialogue. I'm curious if the China issue has played some part in the discussion and discourse around the election. You know, it wasn't really a big thing other than I think every leader at one point brought up that they would get the Michaels released, right? I mean, that's kind of the litmus test on whether you're tough on China. Are you able to actually get these two people back from China? And as I mentioned, Trudeau made a point when he, I think his first conversation when Biden was elected of using that moment, it's traditional that the first call from a U.S. president goes to the Canadian prime minister. And uh, he made a point of saying, you know, we need to get them out. Can you help me get the Michaels out? It, it hasn't come to fruition yet. Uh, but Biden did make a public statement of support for Trudeau's position on that. So in the election, you know, we heard the leaders say that they would make that a priority and that we have to be tough on China. I don't think there's a lot of light between the parties, really. I mean, if it really came down to it, China is a massive economic factor. Um, you know, there are, it's a, I don't want to necessarily characterize it as a threat, but it's certainly a great concern. What's happening in Hong Kong, Canadians are not supportive of that. We can see China flexing its muscles, even going into the Taiwanese airspace, I believe just uh, yesterday. Um, they are bullying in the area. They are making a point. They are not liking these, uh, these Asian Pacific moves these power plays that are happening what we were talking about a few minutes ago with uh, Australia and the US working together. Um, so I think any Canadian leader is going to look at the specter of an empowered China um, economically and militarily and say, wow, we need to stand with our allies, um, whether it comes to trade or it comes to some of these more militaristic things. So no, there wasn't really a lot of light in it. It wasn't a main platform that or, you know, a main um, narrative in the election, at least not from my vantage point. And um, maybe if we think about the big parties, um, I'm wondering if maybe the NDP in particular are a little bit cooler on the U.S. alliance and the NATO alliance than the other major parties. Is that the case or am I just projecting some of the American, British, European political dynamics on Canada by making that assumption? No, I think, you know, um, I often call the NDP the Canadian Values Party in the sense that they're always putting forward everything is from the heart. You know, everything is about what we value and the value of human life and the value of the environment. And so they're not they don't tack militaristically. Right? You, you don't think of I don't want to I don't want to um, call the NDP party kind of like the philosophical hippie party of Canada, although certainly a lot of my NDP friends, um, you know, espouse a lot of values that track more towards peace, right? They are not, you're not going to see them banging the podium about, about war uh, and about the need to have, uh, you know, military engagements. That's just not part of the NDP brand. Now, it, on a given issue, a given leader might have to take a different position. But I think that's a fair kind of assessment from a distance that the NDP are very much a left-leaning party, very much about the social safety net, very much about poverty reduction. Um, they are not a party that uh, sees war, just generally speaking, as a solution to anything. And, and I'm speaking very, very broad strokes, just uh, from a kind of a brand impression point of view. Um, I think also that mid-Atlantic listeners are probably going to be interested in the UK trade dynamics. And Royfield did ask about a trade deal, which I was not, I have to confess, even familiar with, one that was about Canada, the UK, and the two English-speaking countries in the South Pacific. But I know that recently the UK has also, uh, well, for a longer period of time, uh, have been talking about possibly joining the CPTPP. Uh, but more recently, they've raised the concept of joining the USMCA trade deal. Uh, we know with the CPTPP, the largest economy in that block, Japan has reacted pretty positively to the idea of the UK joining, um, although the USMCA seems a little bit stranger considering that the UK is not part of North America. It does have some territories in the Pacific. It's certainly not part of North America. I'm wondering, uh, Laura, do you know how Canada, who is a member of both of those trade blocks, uh, do you know how they're thinking about the idea of inviting the UK into either the CPTPP or into the USMCA? 
Uh, I specifically to your question, no, I don't know that answer, but I can tell you that the Canadian UK trade continuity agreement on April 1st, 2021, really preserved the preferential market access for both of the countries, right? And so um, as, Can- as Canada has watched Brexit and all of that <laughs> from our shores, you know, there, there have been things like this put in place to ensure that we have that tight trade agreement with the UK. But in terms of how that looks for other uh, bilateral or, or multilateral agreements, I really can't answer that question. I can hop in on that if possible. So, um, I've had direct conversations with folks in the British High Commission, and they were um, mostly interested in in basically creating a copycat agreement to the CETA agreement, which is what the current deal is that's on on the table right now. Um, There was interest in actually having a Canada, uh, UK, New Zealand, Australia, the CANZUC agreement created, but Trudeau's government not that keen on it. They thought that there was better energy put elsewhere. And so this is why the trade agreement popped in that uh, didn't include uh, Canada. Um, The UK and Canada right now are in the process of actually turning the copycat CETA, the temporary agreement that basically mirrored CETA, the Canada-EU agreement with a Canada-UK agreement with something more bespoke. The difference between the Canada-EU agreement and the Canada-UK trade agreement carves out some specific deals for British cheesemakers and a few other sectors. So look to, there's there are talks underway right now between Canada and the UK to come up with that bespoke agreement that will replace the compre- comprehensive trade agreement uh, that's that's in place right now. Uh, thank you, Alex and John. Uh, thank you for some uh, thoroughly uh, penetrating questions. Uh, Justin Higgins, uh, friend of the show, you're up next, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. Royfield Brown. And Laura, thank you for joining us. This has been fascinating. So I must profess my relative ignorance to Canadian politics and the way the parties um, make up their agendas and their policies and what motivates the voters. But I do have an American-centric question for you. Here in the U.S., the Democrats tend to be a party that has a strong policy agenda and they run on that policy agenda. Whether you agree or disagree with the specifics of the agenda, it is bold, it is specific, and it is targeted. The conservatives in America, though, have been relatively bereft of ideas, at least since I've worked in the party on Capitol Hill as a policy advisor for a conservative member. The conservative party instead tends to run on values issues. So it's more cultural, it's more um, uh, things that aren't specifically big ideas. It's also about cutting things, whether it be cutting immigration, cutting spending, um, and, and things of that nature. So I was wondering, is the dynamic similar in Canada, or does the Conservative Party actually have grand policy visions? And if so, what are they? That's an excellent question. I would argue that um, the Republican Party, aka Trump Party now, is a bumper sticker party, right? They find the cultural issue and they they run it like a juggernaut. Right? <laughs> they are fantastic at reducing things to a very simple emotional response. And they they always have a hue and cry about cutting taxes. But what has the actual spending been under the Republican Party vis-a-vis Democratic uh, presidents, right? Is it? I think it's more talk than maybe what they truly value, but it's always been the brand. The brand being, you know, we we cut taxes, we don't believe in big government, trickle-down economics, Reagan and his God, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and there's an appeal to that. There's a, I, I think there's an appeal to that idea of that's what a conservative does, right? They cut taxes, they keep government from getting into everybody's lives and getting too big. And so I think that there is a very distinctive brand. But I would argue that the messaging coming out of the Republican Party is at least in the last few years, I'm not suggesting it was the same with Bush one or whatever. um, Although it was read my lips, no new taxes, right? So I mean, the tax thing is always the main narrative. But that idea around uh, let's put out something simple that people can fairly latch on to and these cultural division issues around abortion and stuff like that. I mean, whenever the Canadian Conservative Party gets anywhere close to uh, a vote on abortion rights, you know, it's it's a disaster for them. They don't have the messaging um, 
ability that the Republican Party has. I mean, the Republican Party knows how to play the game. To your point, the Democratic Party is all about policy, 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 policy. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll be specific. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll beat ourselves up trying to explain ourselves. And you have the Republican Party with some of its most vocal um, mouthpieces managing to distill everything down to a feeling of, are you are you proud? Do you like your freedom? Are you, you know, do you care about life? I mean, they're able to distill complex policy issues into powerful bumper stickers. And I think it, Trump may be the best of it, best at it. The Canadian Conservatives are nowhere near that clear in terms of either their platform being about, you know, freedom and tax cuts. They're not clear. They don't really know where they are. And even if they do know where they are, they're not very good at messaging it in that kind of seductive way that we've seen the GOP do. So, you know, I, I give props from a strategic point of view to the Republican Party. They've managed to make everything come down to brand, right? They, they, it's a, there's a loyalty to that vote that is powerful. The conservatives in Canada aren't anywhere near that, you know, and because they'll go from a Mulroney type conservative leader, the progressive conservatives to more of a Harper type leader. They've they've had fractions within them, factions within them. The Reform Party at one point tried to pull away with Western interests. So not only do they not have a consistent policy platform, they don't have a consistent brand in this country, nowhere near what you have with the Republican Party down in the U.S. So, so I guess a follow up to that would be what is the outlook uh, for the conservative party? And I know um, I, I listened to Royfield's questions and, he, and you both kind of hit on this. But here in the United States, gerrymandering is a thing and it really helps uh, the, the Republicans and also the Electoral College, despite, you know, losing the national uh, vote by over seven million um, they are still viable. And really, it's a toss up every single election, almost regardless of the candidates, at least recently. Um, so is it similar in maybe not with gerrymandering, maybe not with the Electoral College? But is it a toss up despite there being muddled messaging by the conservatives and apparently no clear policy platform? And is that just a function of political psychology and the way people are brought up and uh, the allegiances they have to the party? Or is the future more bullish for the Liberal Party? Well, the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, and I could be wrong at this point, but at one point was the longest um, our governing party, I think, in the world in terms of amount of uh, years it had been leading the country, right? So the liberal brand has that long-standing connective tissue to Canadian voter psychology. I mean, they've proven it by their track record um, because they always say fiscally conservative, socially liberal, you know, we're going to be that balanced Canadian. Everything you think about the Canadian stereotypes is kind of like imbued in the liberal brand, right? Right down to their colors, the colors of the flag. So they've been playing that we're the Canadian party for a long time. Um, the conservatives have their moments where they shine when the liberal party has power for too long and gets into scandals. You know, it, it happened uh, It happened a number of years ago uh, in Canada, unlike the US, a leader and a party can have multiple terms. There's not a two term limit here, right? So they can be in power for 15 years, however many years. Uh, but it always seems to end with scandal. They get too big. They have too many uh, cronyism, too many appointments, too much, too many cash deals that don't pass the sniff test. Trudeau almost got taken down by the SNC-Lavalin affair with the same critique being, you know, you're too much power. And Canadians knocked them and said, no, no, minority. You don't get to have a majority. We're, we're sick of that. So the Liberal Party's weak when it comes to how long they can stay in that much power because Canadians get tired of, they get tired of the show. And so if you've got a conservative leader like Harper, who is really a skilled uh, strategist, uh, he wasn't charismatic. He was the opposite of kind of that that sunny, bombastic, liberal kind of brand. But he was efficient in terms of how he kept the country going. It tracked a little bit to the right, but nowhere near where we might see the GOP. And I think a lot of Canadians respected that leadership. And, and that's why he got, you know, two majorities, because people thought, well, hey, this guy's leading it pretty well. I might not be a conservative, but this conservative prime minister doesn't scare me. I think he actually made a strategic error when he tried to bring in some of those Brexit tactics um, and tried to do some dog whistling to beat Trudeau when they realized their mighty war chest might not make it with Trudeau when he first ran as prime minister. 
Uh, and it was a big error because a lot of Canadians said, oh, wait a second, this is not the efficient, strategic, kind of boring, uh, conservative Harper leadership. This looks desperate and extreme. And, and people really recoiled against that. Thank you uh, very much for these answers, lawyer, uh, Laura. I guess one quick last question would be for the Liberals, and I'm, I know there's probably many factions, but maybe for Trudeau, what would his voters or him himself say is uh, his top maybe one or two priorities when looking at America and what they would view America as being a good partner in, in, a, in a relationship? Well, it has to be trade. I mean, you're our, our biggest trading partner. And so when it comes to things like softwood lumber and other um, trade disputes and supply chain and things like that, uh, there has to be that. And I think we saw Trudeau score some points in Canada when the the new um, NAFTA was negotiated, you know, whatever it's called now, but that that was a big negotiation and Canadians were pretty much impressed, I think, although we didn't get everything, but that the Canada stood up to Trump in the early days of his administration and were able to negotiate that deal. So, I mean, trade has got to be a priority, but there's also this narrative uh, in Canada, and especially coming out of the, the liberal brand, that we are special, we have a special relationship with the US, right? Um, and you often hear the US say that about the UK, but with Canada, there's so many of us who work on both sides of the border, who have family on both sides of the border. We really feel as though our, our border is, you know, at times we like it there, especially when there's some civil unrest and some violence in the US. But generally speaking, we see ourselves as very much aligned with the US. Um, and so there's that, there's always going to be that kind of familial positioning. So the priority is going to be to to work with the U.S. on geopolitical things, right? There'll be some some tension around pipelines and whatnot and, and how to get our energy sector to market. But I think generally you're going to see Canada always try to be the little brother of, U, of U.S. administrations unless there is something egregious that happens. You know, uh, Chrétien, he was a, a liberal prime minister, a longstanding one. He stood against going into the Iraq war uh, quite famously, right? That was a big deal that he did not go in, fall in line with the U.S. on something so major. And that actually uh, was highly popular in Canada when Canada did take its own position against the U.S. But generally speaking, I think we tend to really fall in line and just want to get along so that we can get our biggest trading partner trading well with us. Uh, Justin Higgins, uh, thank you for three excellent questions. Um, uh, so we do have uh, Dan Silver, Agent Malone and Alex Bishop on stage. And Adam S., you've held your hand up. Uh, so, uh, Dan Silver, uh, the floor is yours, sir. Hi, uh, quick question. And my apologies if you've already covered this, Laura, because I wasn't here from the start. But I'm curious uh, how you view the future of Maxine Bernier's People's Party of Canada. It seems to me that... Uh, it's basically a one-issue party a vanity project for Mr. Bernier. I, I would think that once we're past COVID, that'll take out the oxygen from their furnace, as it were. But I'm curious if you think that's incorrect. Maybe they're around for the long haul. If so, how is that going to affect the Conservative Party that still seems to be trying to figure themselves out ever since uh, Harper lost? Yeah, we did touch on it a little bit, but I'm happy to kind of summarize and specifically to the way you phrased the question. I do think that uh, it is a vanity project for Bernier, no doubt about it. I mean, he wanted to lead the Conservative Party and, and didn't get the job, right? So so a lot of this feels like, uh, you know, sour grapes by Bernier. But to Royfield's comment earlier, um, almost a million Canadians were willing to put themselves behind such a controversial brand, a party that was showing up and throwing, you know, rocks at the prime minister, this kind of this level of vitriolic campaigning that we just haven't seen in this country. Uh, and so why? Why is that? Is that just because, as I mentioned earlier, where there's fear, hate organizes? Is the fear of the pandemic driving a lot of it? Sure. But then what happens with the pandemic recovery? I mean, we have not even hit the fifth wave, a, a mental health wave. Uh, we haven't hit the wave, all the 
all the things that have happened because of the pandemic. We're still in the crisis, right? We haven't gotten to the other side of the hurricane, if you will. Um, and so what kind of anger and economic struggle is there going to be on that side? Then you take in AI and, and what's going to happen with the jobs and are people going to lose jobs? Are people not going to be able to work in the new economy and the future of work? Who are they going to blame for that? You're looking at huge demographic shifts in Canada with immigration coming by 2030. Are people going to blame job losses on immigration like we've seen with some of the rhetoric that that really got people riled up in the US? So I think it would be foolish for people to say Bernier and his party is a one hit wonder. Um, I think it is beware, beware that once you tap into that vein of anger and grievance, it can lead to, I mean, what did Trump get? 75 million votes or something um, in the US? I mean, it is it is a scary, powerful narrative. Uh, and it and, you know, it tilts towards fascism. And it, we have seen fascist rise when there have been economic crisis. And so I, you know, post pandemic might be a good economy for some people, but a whole lot of people are going to suffer. And I think that Bernier and other parties are going to exploit that. So I, I would say kind of buckle up and, and don't uh, underestimate them. Um, so there you go. There was Canada's election, the second one in, in just two years, um, deconstructed by, by Laura Babcock. Uh, don't forget, folks, uh, we are actually on Clubhouse. If you're listening to this podcast and um, if you would like to be part of the live recording of the show, download the Clubhouse app, go find the Mid-Atlantic Club and smash that. And basically, you'll be alerted whenever we go live with one of the recordings of this show. Don't forget, folks, left or center politics is right thinking politics. Take care. Look after yourselves. We'll see you all again in approximately two weeks time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.